more than that, it really records the creation of the nation of Israel. The creation of the people of God. And as we study it, we will learn a lot about us. About what it means for us to trust God in impossible situations. About what it means for us to walk with Him through the wilderness. About what it means to walk with Him when we feel so enslaved, perhaps by our own sin. And what I love about this book is it reveals so much about God. About His power, about His love, about His pursuit of us, about His grace. Grace. Yeah, this is an Old Testament book. This is part of the law. (laughs) It reveals God's grace. God has always been a God of grace. Some people think Old Testament, that's law. New Testament, that's grace. No, God is a God of grace all the way through, as we shall see as we study this book. And it pictures for us our walk with Christ. So it's very applicable to our lives as well. We'll learn about our identity as God's people. So I'm excited about that. Let me give you a little historical background to give you the setting. It follows the book of Genesis. And as you know, in the book of Genesis, it records the creation, all of creation. And as God creates the world, then he creates Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve fall into sin. They choose to eat the forbidden fruit, and sin enters the world. And the rest of the Bible is about God beginning to deal with that sin, God calling out a people, God redeeming. So in the book of Genesis, we see that. We see as God begins in chapter 12 to reach out to Abraham and call forth one man as he prepares to change the world forever. If you could put the map up. He calls... From clear over here, if you imagine this map extending further, in Ur of Chaldees, calls Abraham and calls him and says, I will lead you to the promised land, Israel, which is here. This is a a larger map of it. Israel is here. He calls Abraham and he says, I will lead you into promised land and I will make you a great nation. Chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, the Lord had said to Abram, before he changed his name to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God promised to bless Abraham, to make him a great nation so that the people of God would become a blessing to all the nations. That's what God's still doing. (laughs) Blessing the people of God so that they will be a blessing to all the nations. So God made this promise to Abraham. Abraham had a son, Isaac. He He reiterated the promise to Isaac and then to Jacob. And then the book of Genesis continues with Joseph who gets sold into slavery by his brothers because they were jealous and gets taken as a slave to Egypt. This is the land of Egypt, ancient land of Egypt, where he was taken as a slave. But he proves himself, and by the end of the book, he is second only to Pharaoh. He is the leader of the entire nation next to Pharaoh. And there's a famine in the land of Israel. So Jacob and his sons, the other sons of Israel, come down 
and make their home in Egypt because Joseph has promised to care for them. And at the end of Genesis, sets the stage for this book of Exodus, which comes next. Because his brothers were jealous and sold him into slavery, they're now afraid of what Joseph will do to them. But Genesis 50, verse 19, Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So that's how the book of Genesis ends. The people of Israel, this one family, is being cared for in Egypt. But now we move into the book of Exodus where God says, okay, I will fulfill the promises I have made to you. And I want to give you an overview of the entire book of Exodus here just so you'll know where we're going as God creates a people. Chapter 1 we'll see that Israel was an enslaved people. But then chapters 2 through 18, God redeems them. He calls them out of slavery and He makes them His own. Chapters 19 through 24, He creates them into a covenant people, a people who know how to have relationship with one another and with God. And then the end of the book, 25 through 40, those 16 chapters all focus on worship. Though what God calls, calls Israel to be as the people of God is a worshiping people. And this defines us as well, doesn't it? We're an enslaved people. We're enslaved to sin. We need redemption. We are helpless. But God redeems us. He is a redeeming God. So we'll talk about that, how He redeems us. And He makes us a covenant people. Love God, love others. That's the greatest commandment for us and that's what we're called to be a covenant people with one another learning to love one another learning to love him and ultimately we are a worshiping people learning to worship him from the heart with all our heart soul mind and strength so as we go through this book we will learn how we are to be as the people of God in all these ways today we're going to look at chapter one we're an enslaved people let's look together at that The chapter begins this way, the first seven verses of Exodus, chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and, all his, oh, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. So the book of Exodus begins with reminding us who came to Egypt and then says, but God created them into a great nation. He fulfills his promise that he made to Abraham. And this is miraculous, folks. Within a couple, maybe 300 years, this family of 70 people went to a group, a nation of about 2 million people. God blessed them. God fulfilled his promise that he had made to Abraham and repeated again to Isaac and to Jacob. And this reminds us about God. He keeps his promises. 
He is a God who keeps His promises. And He pursues us even when we don't pursue Him. You don't see anything in these verses that say that they were worshiping God, that they were following Him, that they were seeking to be His people. It just says God fulfilled His promise. You see, God was a God of grace saying, I keep my promises, you can trust me, even though there's no evidence here that they were seeking God as a nation, as a whole, at this time. In fact, most of them had probably forgotten the promises by this time as they lived in Egypt and grew. But yet, God doesn't abandon them. He says, I will fulfill my promise. I will make you a great nation, whether you serve me or follow me or not. And it's a reminder to us to trust him, even when we can't see what he's doing necessarily, even if we feel like we're failing in how we're following him, he keeps his promises, even in our weakness. He promises to be your life and strength, no matter what you're going through. He promises to never leave you or forsake you. He promises to walk through life with you. He promises to always love you. So no matter what you're going through or what it feels like, he is there with you, strengthening you, empowering you. So as, as the book opens, God is fulfilling His promises. He's making a great nation. It's wonderful. But then the world enters in. We live in a hostile environment. We live in this world that is not fully under the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it means we will have warfare. The world will always oppose the people of God. We don't fit. And as we prosper, as we grow, as God blesses us, we will experience attack. Let's look at the first attack we see in this hostile environment. In verses, uh, let me read 8 through 10. Then a new king, a new pharaoh, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and we'll leave the country. Listen to Pharaoh. He, he begins to rouse the people. So far, Israel has done well living within Egypt, but now he says, hey, we better watch out for these guys. They help the economy of the country. What if they leave? That'll hurt our economy. What if they join with our enemies? They're not really one with us. And so they begin to look critically and, and suspect at the Israelites. They begin to get afraid of what might happen. It creates tension and it creates this sense of battle, this sense of attack. Again, that's what happens with us because the world looks at us as we live out our Christian faith and it says, they're a threat to me. They don't confirm my lifestyle. <laughs> they're not tolerant. They don't emphasize diversity so we can all feel good about whatever lifestyle we're living. And because of that, the world will continue to be hostile. They're calling me to live for a different master than myself. And the world doesn't like that. So here's how the Pharaoh responds, verse 11 through 14. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. 
and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. So the response was to enslave them. One of the things it says they did was make bricks. As you see from the slide, this is actually how they still make bricks today and how they probably made it then. They would take mud and they would put straw in it because the straw changed the chemical composition to make it harder, make it stronger. And they would make these bricks out of mud and they would form them either into molds or by their hands and pile them up like this, let them dry, and they made entire cities out of it. Here's how one historian puts it. The building program inaugurated, inaugurated by Ramesses II required an inexhaustible supply of bricks. It's calculated that it took about 24.5 million bricks to construct the pyramids at Dashur. An Egyptian document has this to say about brickmakers. He's dirtier than vines or pigs from treading under his mud. His clothes are stiff with clay. His leather belt's going to ruin. He's miserable. His arms are destroyed with technical work. He washes himself only once a season. He is simply wretched through and through. The historian Herodotus describes how 120,000 slaves died building a canal from the Nile to the Red Sea for Pharaoh Necho. So when it says they treated them ruthlessly, cruelly as slaves, you need to realize this was a way of essentially working them to death. It was a horrible situation. It was destructive to their lives and everything about them. You see, the people of God are not formed easily, are we? It, it, it takes some pretty hard work by the Lord to chisel off our hard edges and to make us into a people of God that are able to trust Him and walk with Him. And the world and Satan know that we're a threat. They fear our spiritual power. They fear us. As you see, the Israelites, they dreaded, excuse me, the, the Egyptians dreaded the Israelites. They were terrified of them because they were different. The world will always dread people who have spiritual power, people who trust God, because they sense there's more to you than can be seen. And you need to realize that. Don't be afraid of the world. They're afraid of you. So the attack continues. So the, so the world enslaves them, and, it, and it, it's good for us to think about how are we enslaved? How does the world and our own flesh, perhaps, try to enslave us. Maybe to worldly thinking. I really need to live for myself. That's what the world keeps telling me, and we become enslaved to, to that kind of thinking. Or, because of my past, God can't use me. That's not true. <laughs> that's not true, and yet that's worldly thinking that creeps in. Sex outside of marriage is okay. That's worldly thinking that has crept into the church and so many people's thinking. All kinds of possibilities of slavery to addictions. We all struggle with addictions because it's part of our fallenness. Every one of us. 
None of us are exempt. Some are, look better than others, but we all struggle in various ways. Pride, gossip, lies, slander, discontentment with what God is doing in our lives. All these are part of the pressure of the lies that Satan throws at us to get us enslaved to the world so that we will not be useful for the kingdom of God. And God wants to redeem us from those things, to live for him even in our weakness, even in our struggles. I know a church quite well that there were some concerns about the pastor, but instead of going to him, people started talking and the gossip and the slander began to spread more and more until finally they asked him to leave and he didn't even know why. <laughs> they haven't, hadn't talked to him, but the church had bought into this gossip and slander and so they quickly put someone else in place after he was forced to leave. And that man fell into sexual immorality with someone in their congregation and he was forced to leave. And now the, the church is reeling because they don't see that they're under attack. We are under spiritual attack constantly, folks, from the world, from Satan. And when you're tempted to gossip or slander or undermine or destroy or kill or in your minds, you need to realize that's attack. That's enslavement to the world, and we don't need to give in to those. And we all have areas we struggle with. I was reminded this week as I was having a conversation with a dear friend of mine, dear brother, and words came out of my mouth that were very harmful. And I was reminded of just this critical spirit that, tends, that, that I've been enslaved to throughout my life and God seems to work on it and then I fall back into it. It's a struggle. And we all, like I say, we all have areas like that that are destructive and do harm and God wants to work in the midst of that, in the midst of our brokenness and call us back to him. But we need to remember we're an enslaved people and the roots of our slavery go very deep. Too deep for us to save ourselves. And that's the message of Exodus. We can't root it out ourselves. We can't. So what does God do about it? Well, notice he continues to multiply them. He, Pharaoh's trying to kill them off through hard labor. And what happens? They keep multiplying. They keep growing. God keeps pouring out his blessing on them to give them life. Well, because of that, they can't handle it. They're even more afraid. And so the attack Continues. Attack number two, we see in verses 15 through 22, which is the attack of genocide. Verse 15 and 16, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Shifra and Puah. You got to name your kids Shifra or Puah. That would be a good one. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Hard labor is not killing off the Israelites. So Pharaoh says, okay, I'm going to do it directly. And the quickest and easiest way is to do it just as the boys are being born, to have the midwives wring their necks. Kill them on the spot. So Pharaoh enlists these midwives to help. Think for a minute about what this means. 
if every male that gets born is put to death, only the girls are allowed to live, this is genocide. He wants to kill off the entire Israelite race. Because he figures the women will grow up and they'll become slave wives of the Egyptians. That doesn't matter. And the Israelites will be gone forever. This is the same policy that Hitler used in Germany to destroy the Jews. Same policy of Saddam Hussein to kill off the Kurds in Iraq. Same policy in Sudan today of genocide. And over and over again through history, people have sought to kill off an entire nation, an entire peoples. So Pharaoh commands, he commands the midwives to help. Now think what position that put them in. They're already slaves. They're already in a horrible situation. And now they're being commanded by the Pharaoh to put to death the children of their own people. It's a tough place to be, folks. And sometimes in the world we get put in situations that it's so tempting to compromise somehow, isn't it? Because the pressure is great and we're afraid of what we might lose. But listen to what happens. The midwives, verse 17, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Now, I've read commentaries about this. Well, gee, they must, there is something different about the Hebrew whatever women. It's, no, they're lying. <laughs> they're lying. They simply are saying, we fear God and we will not do what you've asked us to do. And we'll make up a story as best we can, but we will not bow to what the government is calling us to do because we believe in preserving life because we fear God. We would rather preserve life than preserve ourselves. We would rather follow God than preserve ourselves. And there's plenty of testimony of this in the Scriptures, isn't there? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You decide what you want to do, but we're going to follow God. If you want to throw us in the fiery furnace, fine. And God protects them. Daniel in the lion's den chooses to follow God and pray to God when he's commanded not to. Peter and John in Acts continue to speak out about the name of Jesus. They say, you decide whether it's better to obey God or you, but we will obey God and do to us what you want want and they continue to speaking out speak out the name you see they choose to disobey the government when the government says do you must do something to disobey god they say no we will obey god first like an abortion like a doctor who's commanded to give abortions or lose his job many have chosen to lose their jobs to obey god first rather than obey the powers that be. And I want you to notice something that I love about this passage. Pharaoh is the most powerful man on earth. He is. This is the greatest nation at the time. They command a huge army, great power, very important. There's no one else more important in the world that's like 
President Bush, the most powerful man in the most powerful nation on earth. And you know what? His name isn't even mentioned. It's God's way of saying, he thinks he's so powerful. No. Whose name is mentioned? Two little midwives, Shifra and Puah. (laughs) Because in God's world, in God's economy, they are far more powerful and more important than anyone else. God uses them to save an entire nation. Their names mean beauty, Shifra, beauty, and Puah means splendor. Pharaoh, who prides himself on being full of beauty and splendor, has none. These two dirty brick-making midwives have splendor and beauty that creates an entire people and saves an entire race. Isn't that amazing? You see, that's God's way. He's not impressed by numbers or power or position or any of that. God is radical in His salvation because He wants to use people like you and me, nobodies in the world's eyes, to change the world forever. That's God's economy. And they're women. (laughs) Again, in the world's eyes, in that culture, women were nothing. And yet they stand up to Pharaoh and make him look like a fool. He's powerless in the face of their choice. Isn't that great? God does not need powerful organizations, lobbyists, tons of money, political power, etc. All He needs is a couple of people that will say, I'm going to follow you first. No matter what it costs me, I will obey you first. And God can do powerful, amazing things to bring salvation and to bless this dark world. Praise God. So when you find yourself in an impossible situation and you feel like there's no way out and you're pressured to give in to worldly pressure and to compromise, be a shifra. Be a puah. And just do what's right no matter what it costs you because you fear God more than man. And God will bless it. Do you realize how powerful prayer is? We're in a spiritual warfare, folks. We're in a battle. And a simple prayer from a simple heart of faith drives out the powers of darkness. You don't, you don't have to have a position of power or be a preacher or any of those kinds of things to be used of God in powerful ways. Are you in a tough relationship? A tough job? Keep being faithful and just do what God is calling you to do. And eventually, in his timing, he will bless you. Notice the result, verse 20 and 21, of these faithful women. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. All these efforts of Pharaoh to destroy the nation, (laughs) he can't do a thing. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. He blessed them for their faithfulness. Are the people still enslaved? Yes. But the nation's growing and God is blessing and God is pouring out his life on them. He's giving them life in the midst of death. 
He doesn't take them out of the situation yet. He keeps them in it, but he gives them his life in the midst of it. He's still working today to build the people of God. He wants to use you to do that. While you, in the midst of darkness and struggle, in a hostile world and spiritual warfare, he wants to give you life in the midst of it as you trust him and walk with him. And he will take you out of it in his timing. It's like the old chorus, God will make a way when there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. God will make a way for me. Well, the war is not over, is it? Verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that's born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now he says, I can't trust these midwives. I'm going to get the whole nation of Egypt to help me. Every little boy you see running around that's a Hebrew, throw him in the water. Kill him. Drowned him. Horrible. It's much like Hitler, as he enlisted the Germans, helped turn in the Jews. Let me know where there a Jew is and we'll turn him in. And we'll destroy him. But there were many that chose to disobey Hitler. The Cory Ten Booms, the Oscar Schindlers, and many, many more that are unnamed who chose to protect and care for the Jews during World War II and are blessed by God for it, I believe. And in all this, Pharaoh again is saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to destroy this nation. I'm going to enlist them and have them drowned. Every boy. But God's in control. Think ahead with me in Exodus. Pharaoh says, drown every boy. The tenth plague. God kills every firstborn male of, all, of the Egyptians. Pharaoh says, drown him in the water. When they crossed the Red Sea, Pharaoh's entire army was destroyed by water. Pharaoh seems so powerful. God laughs. You think you're going to destroy my people? <laughs> Let me show you who's in control. It's one of the great messages of the book of Exodus. In the book of Acts, as the early church gets attacked, what happens? The gospel spreads. God blesses. God uses even the attacks to further his kingdom. God wants to do the same in your life, folks. Part of it is seeing that God is in control, that God is bigger than what you are going through, and submitting to his plan. I want to close by reading a poem to you. By a little boy, you may have read about it. His name is Isaiah Yenter. It was in our paper in April, April 12th. A little boy who had cancer and died at age 10. Here's a poem he wrote, and would that God would give us this kind of faith as we are attacked and experience the difficulties of this world. Ten-year-old boy, before he died, wrote this. I wonder why he chose me. A cell growing out of control so rapidly. I wonder why he chose me. A tumor on my brainstem that nobody could see. I wonder why he chose me. A year to live, it just can't be. 
There are so many things that I still want to be. I wonder why he chose me. Hospitals, doctors, MRI scans and shots, the pills I can swallow, the thicket I cannot. I wonder why he chose me. To teach me and the world that only he holds the key. To miracles, cures, blessings and love, God holds the keys to all of the above. I no longer wonder why he chose me. I live every day as if it is my last and I be the best I can be. Let's pray. Lord, give us this kind of faith. A faith that in the midst of the battle that we face every day, our own enslavement as we struggle with sin, as we struggle to love others, as we struggle with our own selfishness. Give us a faith that sees your hand at work and that submits to you and seeks to be the best we can be, to, to be a shifra, a pua, one who fears you more than fears the world. And Lord, continue to build us as the people of God. Use us as your instruments to love one another and to bless this world. Make us a blessing, we pray. In Jesus' name. And Lord, we pray for the offering as well. Use it to further your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.